I'm reading from Paul's first letter to young timid Timothy in chapter 1. And there in verse 15, Paul writes, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I want you to pay particular attention to the way Paul categorizes himself in that passage. Paul considers himself to be the chief of sinners. And in saying that, and in writing this letter to young Timothy, Paul indicates that if Jesus Christ can save him, Jesus Christ can save anyone. Paul says, I'm chief of sinners. And since I am the chief of sinners, and since I have obtained mercy, anybody can obtain mercy. And that being the case, Paul said, there is no reason for anyone ever to despair. Now bear in mind this. In the sense of being immoral, Paul was never a wicked man. Paul was never a reprobate. Paul had actually been a religious man all of his life. He had zealously endeavored to serve God. And yet Paul had persecuted the church. He had actually made havoc of it. We read that after he held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter to the church of God. But, in his madness against the church, and in all of his persecution, Paul was honest and sincere in it. Because Paul thought that these Christians were heretics. They were perverters of the law of Moses. They were transgressors to the Decalogue that God had given to His people. And Paul felt that it was his duty, his obligation to God, to exterminate this, this new heresy. And then one day, as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, as he had letters there from the chief priests in Jerusalem, that if he found Christians in Damascus to bring them bound back to Jerusalem for trial, on that road, God knocked him down. And God beat him up. And he learned that he was in rebellion to the Lord. And so, Paul immediately changed his whole course. And he called upon the Lord for mercy. The preacher Ananias came. I love that story too. You read between the lines in Acts chapter 9. The Lord spoke to Ananias and said, There's a man named Saul in Simon's house on the street called Straight, and I want you to go to him. And Dr. Luke says, Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about this man and how he 
does a lot of things, and how he persecutes people. Now, if you ever read between the lines of that passage, the Lord says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. He's expecting you. He's praying for you. Lord, isn't there somebody else? I've heard about this man. I'm afraid, he said. But he went. And Ananias the preacher went to see Saul of Tarsus and told him the conditions upon which he could obtain mercy and pardon. And Paul, Saul, Saul complied with those conditions without any hesitation. Ananias said, Brother Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. And as Paul is telling that story to King Agrippa, he said, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision, O King. And after that, he rejoiced in the full forgiveness of his sins. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, we find many demonstrations that Jesus Christ was a friend of sinners. Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus was anxious to help them and Jesus was anxious to save them. However, as we began to speak of Jesus Christ as the friend of sinners, we have to understand something. Jesus Christ was the friend of sinners. Jesus Christ was not the friend of sin. You can search the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. And you will not find anywhere in there where Jesus ever endorses the sinner's wrongdoing. And there can be no terms of peace between Jesus and a sinner. As long as that sinner is defiant, rebellious, and persists and continues in sin. And that's something that seems lost on so many in the religious world today. There's so many that want to say, well, come to Jesus. Oh, well, that's okay if you do that, or that's okay if you do something else. Jesus never endorsed sin. There are those today in religious groups. When I see religious groups hosting things like a drag queen story hour, somehow, reading my Bible, I know my Lord would not approve of such a thing. When I see religious groups that openly allow gay men, homosexual men to serve in their pulpits, I know Jesus would not condone such a thing. Oh, and I say things like that. And there are people that are quick to say, well, Tim, you're judgmental. You don't have the Spirit of Jesus in your heart. As kindly and lovingly 
as I know how to say it. I would counter those who openly condone sinful practices do not understand the teachings of Jesus, nor do they have themselves the Spirit of Jesus. In order to obtain mercy, in order to enjoy the friendship of Jesus Christ, the sinner must be sick of sin and anxious to have relief from the guilt and the pollution of sin. As the friend of sinners, beloved Jesus Christ is ready. He's willing. He wants to forgive the most depraved person on the top side of God's green earth who's ever lived. But Jesus Christ cannot. Consistent with His will and consistent with His plan, save any sinner so long as that sinner loves their sin and desires to remain and live in those sins I want you to think back with me think back to the first century to that time when Jesus Christ walked up and down the dusty roads of Palestine the sinners who found in him a kind and tender and sympathetic friend were those humble sinners, the outcasts who realized they were lost and undone. And they came to Jesus. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were sinners. They were actually the very worst of sinners. And Jesus denounced the scribes and the Pharisees in some of the most scathing terms possible. And tragically, those scribes and Pharisees could have found a friend in Jesus if they had realized a need for His pardoning love. But they felt like they were righteous. And they felt like they were holy. And considered themselves the true guardians of heaven's laws. And those scribes and Pharisees, instead of feeling in their heart a need for Jesus, they felt like Jesus had a need for them. They were sinners. But they were religious sinners. And that's the worst sort that any man or woman can be. They paid tithes. They fasted. They prayed standing in the street corner so everybody would see them. And they were meticulous in the observation of their traditions. In fact, they were so busy, they were so busy enforcing their opinions on others. And they were so blinded by their zeal, and so smug and self-satisfied in their mad heresy hunting, they never thought of measuring their own lives and attitudes by the character of God as it was revealed in the Scriptures. They were sinners. Badly in need of salvation. And they didn't know it. And Jesus told them about their hypocrisy. 
And he told them because of their hypocrisy, they were bound for the fires of an eternal hell. And they didn't believe him. You know what it did? Made them angry. Made them hate the Lord. They were self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-serving sinners. And they felt no need of a divine Savior. What we need is a sense of sin. You see, oftentimes people don't come to Jesus. And the reason people don't come to Jesus Christ is because they don't feel like they're sinners. They don't feel like they need the Lord. And so we present the story of the cross and it becomes a stumbling block to many folks. Let's be honest. The story of the cross, the story of the Son of God dying on a rough-hewn wooden cross for me and for you, it's not complimentary to men and women. It's not a compliment to humanity to say that they had gone so far down to the depths of depravity to the extent that God had to send Jesus from heaven to save them. It's not a compliment. What we must have that eludes us in our sophisticated age of the 21st century is a sense of sin. We have to realize we're all sinners and we have to all realize that we carry the burden of sin. And we have to know that we are heavily involved and we don't have anything to pay that sin debt with. We are actually hopelessly insolvent and utterly bankrupt. And that's when we come to the one who will pay our sin debt. The reason that we're not better Christians... And the reason that we're not more grateful Christians is we have never fully realized just how terrible sin really is. For many of us, probably most of us, we simply inherited our religion. And because we inherited our religion, we have no real personal convictions. Inheriting our religion, we've never really known the guilt of our own sin. And never really sought and found relief in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We've never really found ourselves face down, utterly bankrupt, with no hope and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the way the publican did in Luke chapter 18. And the tragedy is that in our day and time, more churches gain growth by regeneration than they do by generation. You see, in our day and time, we have way too many Nominal Christians. Professing Christians that 
live like practicing atheists. And so often, people don't feel grateful to God. And don't rejoice in the privilege of serving God. And so often, folks do what little they do for God with a irksome sense of duty, you might say. And they limit those duties to a certain finite number of commands. Maybe even limit it to a few specific acts or the bare minimum requirements. In fact, I liken a lot of Christians today to a college student I knew one time. I knew him quite well. And on the first day of the fall and spring semester, this young man would go to every one of his classes. And he would get the syllabus. And he would see what dates certain papers had to be turned in, what dates certain things had to be read, what date exams were going to be done. And his greatest joy was always finding one of those professors who said, I don't check roll. If you can pass my class without coming, more power to you. And so this young man would take the syllabus and he'd never go to class except when there was going to be an exam or there was a paper to turn in. And was quite satisfied to get a C in those courses. I mean, he really hated getting one of those professors that check roll. But I would always do that. What's, what's the minimum I've got to do to pass this professor's class? And I always made sure I did just that minimum. And I've got the transcript to prove it. There are a lot of Christians like that. God, what's the bare minimum I can do? And still get to heaven. What? How little can I get by with? And still make it to heaven. Get my ticket punched and get there. That's not what Jesus is all about. When we realize. When we come to the point to realize that we're lost. And we're hopeless and we're helpless. And Jesus has come to our rescue. And that in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone we have hope. Then we come to Jesus Christ the same way we'd run out of a burning building. If this building was on fire right now, if you looked up here and there's a blazing fire burning in the corner of this building, how hard would I have to beg you to get out of here? I wouldn't. I wouldn't even have to say anything. Somebody would yell fire and everybody would start running. Nobody would have to coax anybody to, to leave. When we see that we are forever lost without Jesus Christ, we won't have to be begged or coaxed to come to Christ and to serve Christ. We must learn the gospel is for sinners. And the church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. And Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And when we say that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, that's me. 
And, and don't get too smug. That's you too. Now let's be honest. When we read the Gospels, and we see the people that Jesus invited especially to be His friends, a lot of those are not really the kind of people we want in our church. There was Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were illiterate fishermen. Now, as most of you know, I'm not a fisherman. I don't indulge in that activity. But I've been around people that are. If somebody goes out early in the morning, and they spend all day in the boat on the lake or the river fishing, and they catch a whole bunch of fish, and they come in about 5.30 or 6, about the time the sun's starting to set in the afternoon. How do those folks smell? Most of them I've been around didn't smell real good. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John to be His friends, they didn't have men and speed stick and band roll on in the first century. They didn't have dial soap. I have an idea that those four men had a certain odor about them. And I have an idea if they came in and sat next to us in church, with, I'm moving. Or think about Mary Magdalene. Her reputation was less than sterling, but Jesus invited her to be His friend. Or Matthew, the tax collector. I think there's an article in the bulletin about Matthew today even. These are the people that Jesus surrounded Himself with. And what did they have in common? They were weak and sinful people. All through the New Testament, there are stories of Jesus Christ being the friend of sinners. In John chapter 8, Jesus is sitting there teaching and the Pharisees drag this woman up to Him and they throw this woman at His feet. I want you to see her. Her clothes are disheveled. Tears are running down their face and they've made little marks in the grime of her face as she's been drugged through the city streets. And they said, Master, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law says she must be stoned. What do you say, Lord? What do you say, Master, Teacher? Jesus knelt down and He wrote on the ground in front of all of those men. And He looked at them. He said, The one among you that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And Dr. Luke tells us, or John tells us, that one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and walked away. And finally, there's no one left except Jesus and this woman. And Jesus says, woman, where are those that, that accused you? Does no man condemn you? She says, no man, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go. But He didn't tell her to go on and just keep living the way she was living, did He? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Or Luke chapter 7 tells us about Simon holding a feast for Jesus in Jesus' honor. And this woman shows up at the feast. And she's a woman of poor reputation, we'll say. 
And she anoints the feet of Jesus. Simon's thinking, (laughs) if the Lord knew about the character of that woman, He wouldn't be letting her touch Him. And Jesus teaches Simon a lesson on forgiveness, doesn't He? And He tells Simon that wherever this gospel's preached, what she's done is going to be spoken of as a memorial to her. In Luke chapter 15, we find a story there of a young man that told his father, he said, I want my inheritance and I want it now. And he took it and went to the far country. Living in sin, he spent it in riotous living. And then he realized he was penniless. He was bankrupt. And he ended up slopping the hogs for a hog farmer. And he thought about what things were like back home. The father in the story represents God. The young man made his way home and God and the father opened his arms and welcomed him home. One of my favorite stories is Zacchaeus of Luke chapter 19. And I guess the reason the story of Zacchaeus is one of my favorites is because it makes me think of my Uncle Bill. That was my daddy's baby brother. I talked about him in Bible class a minute for a few moments this morning. He brought shame to the family. He went off to the University of Texas, got a degree in accounting, and spent his entire working career with the IRS. Daddy eventually forgave him. Well, Zacchaeus was a tax man. Zacchaeus was a tax man. And he was a chief, the chief public of the chief tax man. He was rich. And the people despised him. And he heard that Jesus was coming through town, so he tried to see him. But the crowd was so big, so thick, lining the streets, they wouldn't let him get through the crowd. I can see that little short, bow-legged Jewish tax collector trying to get to the front of the crowd. Get out of the way. Who wants you here? So he runs ahead of everybody, and he climbs up into a sycamore tree. And he's up in the top of that sycamore tree. And he's looking down, and Jesus passes that way. And he looks up and sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. Going home with you, Zacchaeus. Do you realize how scandalized the people of Jericho were? That Jesus went home with that outcast tax collector? I'd love to know. I wish Dr. Luke had told us what they talked about. But whatever Jesus said to him that day changed his life forever. He said, Lord, half of everything I've got, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've taken anything wrong from any man, I'm going to restore it to him fourfold. The woman caught in adultery, the sinful woman, the prodigal son, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And we could go on and on and on of sinful people that came to Jesus Christ and Jesus befriended them. And Jesus is no less a friend of sinners today than He was in the first century. Jesus is calling them now to come and rest, just like He did then. He said, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus Christ is rich in mercy, and the terms of salvation are so simple and so easy. Believing in Jesus with all your heart, Repenting of everything that's sin in your life, confessing His name and being buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of past sins. And that makes you a Christian. 
and reaches, gives you the forgiveness of sins. The terms of pardon are in the reach of everyone. So you might use the words of an old familiar invitation hymn. Oh, why not tonight? Believe, obey, the work is done. Be saved. Believe in Christ. Obey His commands. And live for Him. It's that simple. It's His invitation as we stand.